there to my heart was the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Love those words, Lord Jesus, because they speak so clearly of the of your blood, even as a solvent for all the muck and the mess of sin, and it just washes away to utter cleansing. We are not just atoned for, covered over. Our sins aren't just buried. Our sins are gone by your most precious blood. Lord, it is a huge theological truth, and yet it has such real-time meaning for us messy human beings. And so we thank you for the blood. And we praise you for, again, this, this remembrance, which is also a proclamation. It's remembrance of your great sacrifice and the proclamation that we are children of the new covenant and you are coming to get us. And we look forward to that. Lord, as we continue in your word with Joshua tonight, I, I thank you. Lord, for all the, the realness of the scriptures and, and I thank you just for dealing not in, not in all kinds of allegory or metaphor, but Lord Jesus, how you just deal in the truth of what really happened. And I pray that we might learn from these things, that we might take it to heart as a church fellowship. Yes, Lord, but also personally, each one of us consider what your word has to say to us by the power of your spirit. And Holy Spirit, we're here to listen and to learn tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, and good evening to you all. Joshua chapter seven. We will continue on tonight. Joshua chapter seven. It has been a strong and courageous beginning for Joshua and the Israelites. First six chapters of Joshua are just a hoot and a half. I mean, there's just great things that happen Great victories, you know, water standing in a heap, walls falling down, and the very first of, of what they expect to be many glorious victories now in the promised land. Think about Israel. They are five and O. Oh. They're on a streak here, a winning streak. They have not lost a battle since they left Egypt. All the way up to present time, Egypt drowned in the Red Sea. The Amalekites well, they were defeated, routed in the Valley of Rephidim. And then Sihon and the Amorites, they were wiped out in the wilderness strongholds, Og and the Bashanites in the pasture lands of Adrei. I know y'all remember Adrei. And Jericho, Jericho, so much for the walled city. The sound was blown through the shofar. The people gave a shout. The walls came down and the people went up. So there's been victory, 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 yeah, five victories so far. And to the end of chapter six, you can say, oh, how the enemies of God have fallen, how the people of God are victorious. And you know what, honestly? The place of victory can be the most dangerous place to be in our lives. Standing as a winner, standing over a defeated enemy, standing in absolute conquest and victory in my life, that can be a very dangerous place. We can forget, as the people of God, in our victory, we can forget ourselves in our victory. Worse than that, we can forget the work of God. 
So John writes in 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I can't say it any more plain than that. How do I overcome? How am I victorious? How do I get to the end of the race and break the tape? How do I do this? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We had a baptism today. And, and Jackie, at home, if you're watching, God bless you. Thank you for the honor of, of being here with you. And, and it was just, it was precious. Eva said it never gets old. It just never gets old. And, and every time a person is baptized, there, there is just, that moment is so fresh and, and so, so precious. And, and watching this take place, and, and I was talking with, with Jackie and with her husband, and, and we were talking a little bit about baptism and the history of it, and I just had a cup of coffee, so I was good for about an hour of explaining. Uh, but as we talked about it, I just thought, you know, the older I get, the more I tire of theology and big religious words and big profound explanations that among Christians we can use these words and make these, these statements and they just sound so big and impressive. You know what? Jesus died because he loves you. It's, it's that simple. And, and Israel is victorious because they trusted God, because they're following him. That is the whole thing. Jesus, our Yehoshua, our Joshua, is the source of victory, the only source of victory. If you want to be victorious, it's only through Jesus. And by the way, that doesn't mean you're gonna be victorious right now. You may have a lifetime of feeling beaten and losing and, and conquest after conquest. You're just, you're going, why? And I can't get there. If you want to be victorious, it will only be through Jesus. And his promise is to get you there. Why haven't I gotten there yet? Because he's still working. I know in my life, like I said, and think about this with yourselves, isn't it in the place of difficulty where we trust him the most? And then in victory and in ease and when everything's going fine, I'm good. I don't really need him. When I'm struggling, I need him desperately. It's amazing how my prayer life, I was, just, I was comparing in my own head, my prayer life in Ghana last September versus my prayer life back in Washington this September. I mean, Cheryl, there wasn't a day that we weren't with Chris, hands together, praying, calling out to the Lord, asking for the next step, the next moment to somehow get us out of Africa. They should make a movie and call it that. <laughs> but so here we are a, a year later, and it's good, and Chris is home, and, and, and he's just, he's adapted so well, and, and honestly, right now, life's really good. And I was thinking, boy, I haven't had the need to pray like I did a year ago. So that's the difference. Be careful in victory. Be careful when you have conquered and you're feeling good. What did Paul say after describing Israel and saying that they are our example? He said, let him who stands take heed lest he falls. Because that's when it happens. Joshua chapter six, if you look back there at verse 20, the people shouted, the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. By the way, I love that picture. We shared it on Sunday night at our Yom Teruah service. There's a trumpet and a shout and the people go up. It's like a little picture, a little snapshot of the rapture of the church. But it's, it's a moment of just great victory and joy 
But you know what? Walls don't typically fall down at the sound of a trumpet or the shout of a human voice. This is pretty unusual. Walls fall down because God does it. And yet in the midst of this victory, as they raced up into Jericho and they took the city and they burned it to the ground and they, they did what they were told to do and they were conquerors and they were victorious, did anybody remember God made the walls fall down. Chris asked me a question this last week. He said, why, um, Dad, why does God make rivers pile up? And why does he make walls fall down? And what he was asking, I had to actually kind of poke at him a little bit to understand, what, what are you talking about, son? And what it came to, his question is, why does God involve himself in such little things? And I thought, oh, wow, that's really a great perspective because my perspective on this side is, whoa, rivers are piling up. Whoa, walls are falling down. From a human perspective, impressive. From a God perspective, why is he wasting his time on these things? It's a great question. Why this measured approach? Hey, these aren't little to us, but to God, the creator of the entire universe. Are you kidding? Knock over a wall. No big. Why is he doing this? And I had to think for a minute. And I said, Chris, it's because he's fortifying faith. That's what this is about. Why is God dealing in the walls of Jericho and taking his people through this process of coming into the land and taking hold of the land, having to fight these battles for the land, but God's really the one who's the victor. He's really the one who brings the success. Why is he doing all this? He is fortifying the formation of Israel's faith. And we need that. Hebrews 11.30 tells us, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. But once faith appears, as it did on the outskirts of Jericho, faith needs to be built up. It needs to be reinforced after Jericho, which is why Jude says in Jude 20, verses, Jude 20 and 21, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Build up your faith. You got a foundation. And now the Lord wants to build on it. Why? Why is the Bible so insistent on building up faith? Chapter seven, verse one, but. My mom used to say, and this is a big but. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban, or unfaithfully can also be translated treacherously. Everything was going so well, Israel. For six chapters in Joshua, after five different battles, God has brought you through victoriously. You're doing so well, but, and it happened so fast. Human fidelity can turn on a shiny dime into infidelity, just like that. Or in this, came, in this case, not a shiny dime, but silver and gold. See, there's one rule, one rule of engagement we talked about on Sunday that God placed on the people of Israel for the battle of Jericho, that the rule of engagement was the city was under the ban. The entire city is under the ban. Cherim in the Hebrew, devoted 
to destruction, or you can say devoted to the Lord. The bottom line was, none of this is yours, Israel. All of it is mine. By the way, a side note, in the massacre of all the people, on this side of heaven, we go, oh, man, on the heavenly side, all those peoples were gods to deal with. And he would, and he did. I don't know how I wasn't there. But everything is devoted to me. Everything is mine. And all the silver, gold, bronze, and iron were to be direct deposited into the treasury of the Lord. Not taken home, not used, not borrowed, given completely to God, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, by the way, it's not Achan. Achan's great because it goes with the whole Achan breaking heart, and you can use that if you'd like to, but it's not Achan, it's Achan in the Hebrew. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel, Achan. His name means troubler. It's perfect. <laughs> Always stop and ask yourself, what is this biblical name in the Hebrew or the Greek? Find out what it means. It will inform you into what's going on. Troubler was his name, Achan. The dust had not even settled when this secret sin got seeded into, buried beneath victorious Israel. Before we take another verse, ask yourself, how long after moments of great faith does it take for sin to come creeping in? Five minutes? <laughs> 10, a day, a week? How long after leaving a Bible study or a service of worship or a time of fellowship with other believers, how long does it take for sin to be knocking at your door and for you to feel that lure? Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happened to them as example. To us, they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. But there's a little problem in verse one here. If Achan did the stealing, why does the anger of the Lord burn against the sons, plural, of Israel? Why is it the sons of Israel? The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully, for Achan did this. I thought Achan was the problem, and the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. He's angry with the whole community. It's just Troubler who's the problem. Not the whole community. Why is God upset with the community? A couple things to note. Number one, nobody sins remotely. Nobody sins remotely. That is in isolation or in a vacuum. Nobody sins remotely. Sin is virulent. It's contagious, highly contagious. No virus so rapidly or rapidly spreads and devastates communities like sin does. Turn over in your Bibles for a moment to Romans chapter five. Romans five. I'll give you a second. Romans chapter five. How can the sin of one man, Achan, be the sin of all Israel? Why are the sons of Israel implicated in all of this? And again, no one sins remotely. In Romans chapter five, picking up in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, 
right, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. The word men there, ladies, is anthropos. It's all people. Saying all humanity, death spread to all humanity because all sinned, and that's it. For any one of us to go, why am I being blamed for that guy's sin? The only way you can actually say that is to be sinless. If you're sinless, feel free to point the finger. If you're sinless, feel free to say, it's not my fault. But if you have even one sin in your life, you can't make that claim. No one sins remotely. Adam sinned, and people will look at Adam, and they'll say, see, he's the one who messed it up for us. People will look at Eve and go, she bit the fruit. How many times have I heard people say, and I'm gonna have a conversation with Adam and Eve when I get to heaven. Can you even imagine the two of them looking down the line of people who wanna blame them? Thing is, there will not be a line because everyone, the moment we arrive, will realize we are no better. We are in the same place. I would have bit the fruit because I did. In my life, Paul goes on, he says, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, it's not seen, it's not not understood when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. See, sin entered the world and people started dying. Why, because of the sin of Adam? No, because of their sin. Who maybe they didn't sin like Adam, but they sinned and death was already in the world. And once death was in the world, if you sin, you're gonna die. Paul continues, even over those, verse 14, who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. And now now it gets weird. See, this is Paul. He's just brilliant. Adam's a type of him who is to come. How is that? What do you mean? Well, Adam sinned. Death entered the world. Therefore, death spread to everybody because everybody sinned. So by the sin of one, the ball started rolling and we all jumped on board and picked up death on our own. But the free gift is not like the transgression, verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. I just love this. Sin spread to everyone, and there's only one thing greater than the spread of sin, and that is the spread of grace. That is the blood of Jesus. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And Jake asked the greatest question today. You know, people always say, why do I have to be blamed for all of these people's problems? And Jake said, have we ever stopped to ask, why should I be saved by the blood of Jesus? Why should I be included in that? Well, instead of, oh, I'm such a victim. You know, the world is so hard, and why should I? It's not my fault. How come you're saying, how about looking at Jesus and going, why do I get grace? I think that's a better question. So Lacan's sin affected and and infected Israel. There is now a, a sin infection among the people. 
Now, some of you might say, okay, that's fine, I get it, I, I accept that no one sins you know, remotely, that, that sin does tend to spread out. But, but in this case, in this case, come on. How, how does this work? Second thing to note. Akan's sin is rooted in Israel's sin. So nobody sins remotely, but Akan's sin is rooted in Israel's sin. This is the answer to the question of personal responsibility. So let's say Tom sins. Does that, is that my fault? Well, no, it's not. It's not, except for the fact that I'm a sinner too and I'm, I'm probably right behind him, you know. Bible says in Ezekiel 18, verse four, behold, and I think it's, does it say 15 up there? Yeah, it does. It should be Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, four, not 15, five, so you can fix that. It says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Parents, you're not responsible for your children's faith. You're responsible to raise them to show them Jesus, to teach them Jesus, but they have a choice to make. And kids, you can't blame your parents. It's just how it works. The soul that sins will die. And so we say, okay, well, there's personal responsibility. So how, how is this whole Achan thing a problem for all of Israel? Because Achan's sin is rooted in Israel's sin. Let me explain. Israel immediately forgot God who gave them the victory. And we see that picking up in verse two. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. It's not Ai, it's Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. This is, by the way, why I'm calling this Ai, Ai, Ai. That's a secondary title for the teaching. They returned to Joshua and they said to him, do not let the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need go up to Ai, do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. We can take them. We got it. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as Water, how interesting. That was the description of the Canaanites before Israel came into the land. Hearts melting, becoming like water, and now Israel. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Now they've got eye problems. <laughs> See, ay, ay, ay. So here they are, struck down. They're struck down, by the way, interesting, in a place called Shebarim. Ha-Shebarim means the breaks or the breaches or the shatterings or the collapse. Israel's army collapsed before the men of Ai. They should have been able to just go up there. The spies, Joshua sent spies. They came back and we got it. We can take them. But the men of Ai drove them back. The mighty Israeli army, <laughs> the Israelite army collapsed against puny Ai. You know what the difference is here between this loss and the victory in Jericho? They had an O plan from the Lord for Jericho. There was no consultation of the Lord for I. As far as I read, and show me if I've missed it, nobody asked the Lord what they should do. Nobody consulted with God. 
The fall of Jericho was preceded by the O plan. We see this at the end of chapter five, the operational plan of the captain of the Lord's host, Yehoshua, Jesus, as we talked about. The shofars and the shouts were only effective because of the supernatural work of God. His hand was before them. He broke down the walls so that they could go up into and take the city. That was God's work. That was the plan. It was a strange plan. Six days of walking in silence, tooting a horn. Seventh day, go around seven times in silence, tooting the horn, and the walls fall down. Never has there been a military strategy like that in history before or after, and yet God was at work. And Jesus was the one who told Joshua, this is the plan, let's stick to it. They stuck to it, they were victorious. But now, after their 5-0 and history, we can take AI. Don't bother the Lord. We got this. Did anyone even think to ask the Lord about the operation? This is why I say Akan's sin is rooted in Israel's sin because everybody rushed into Jericho and forgot God. Akan was just among the many. Note this in your Bibles if you want to look back at the book of Numbers, a couple of books back, chapter 27. Numbers 27, we hear something very specific as the Lord sets apart Yehoshua, Joshua, son of Nun, to this position of leadership. Numbers 27, 18, the Lord said to Moses, take Yehoshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Note that. And lay your hands on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest. Keep that in mind and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. Verse 20, you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, they shall go out, and at his command, they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. What was Joshua's commission before each and every battle? It was to first stand before the Lord. This is inherent in the role that's been given to him. You, Joshua, are commissioned to come before the Lord. You go to Eleazar, the high priest, you stand before the Lord, now that happened because the Lord showed up before Jericho. But now with AI, we see no standing before the Lord. We see no going before Eliezer, the high priest. Joshua was a spirit-filled man. That's really interesting because this spirit-filled man completely missed the leading of the Holy Spirit. Les, do you think that's possible? <laughs> Is it possible for a spirit-filled follower of Jesus to quench the spirit? Of course it is, which is why Paul warns us against it. You can be, wow, spirit-led and Holy Spirit-filled. You can, you can be, you can declare, I had the baptism of the Holy Spirit on this date at this time and I know exactly what happened and I have the spirit in me and with me, but you can completely miss his leading if you're not going before the Lord. If you're just going off on your own. Think about the commissioning again. Who did I say was there? Who did he have to stand before, before the Lord? The high priest. The high priest whose name is Eliezer. 
So he goes to Eliezer the high priest. He is supposed to be present. Eliezer is supposed to be present with Yehoshua, with Joshua, at every meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff before they decide on a battle plan. So you gotta have Joshua, you gotta have Eliezer there. Where is Eliezer in Joshua chapter seven? He is not mentioned once. He's gotta be somewhere around the camp, but he is not consulted. He's not brought into any kind of an operational plan. Joshua sends spies up to Ai. They come back. We can take it. Joshua says, great, take some guys and go take it, and they get routed. No one talked to Eliezer. No one stood before the Lord. And Eliezer's name means God's helper. Helper of God. You can be a spirit-filled person, but if you don't consult with the helper of God, you're not being led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Joshua 14, 16, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. But if you wanna try and bring it to remembrance on your own, you're gonna miss out. You gotta go to Eliezer. You've gotta go to the helper. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning, John 16, verse seven, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And had Joshua gone with God's helper before the Lord, he would have been personally convicted by divine revelation that there was sin in the camp. Joshua didn't know because Joshua didn't go with Eliezer before the Lord. A spirit-filled man, absolutely. The gifts of the spirit were in play with Joshua. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11 verse two says these are all attributes of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was on Joshua. He had that option. He had all of this, but he didn't consult. Eliezer is a picture in type of the Holy Spirit and Joshua took the counsel of spies over the wisdom of the Spirit. And all Israel was kind of pumped up and prideful. And it is so easy to unwittingly quench the Spirit when I'm standing in a place of victory. Everything's good. I've conquered. Let's go take the next town. This one's easy. And the moment I walk away from the Spirit, I quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the Spirit. You know, I always read that verse, and I, I've so long in my life thought about, well, those who quench the Spirit are cessationists. That's someone who quenches the Spirit, someone who doesn't believe that the Spirit's at work. No, I quench the Spirit anytime I refuse to consult him. You quench the Spirit anytime you head off on your own into battle, and you haven't stood before him and said, Lord, what would you have us do? Lord, how would you lead? Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully, and that should be underscored in all our Bibles. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. But no, don't bother God's helper. It's just a little battle. You know what Paul said to that? Galatians chapter three, verse two. This is the only thing I wanna find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, Jericho, 
Are you now being perfected by the flesh? I. I, I, I. You don't have to actively deny the Spirit. Just don't rely on the Spirit and you will quench his work in your life. It's, it's that simple. And back to Chris's earlier question, you know what? It's not the size of the problem that concerns the Lord, big or small, rivers or walls. The issue before the Lord is the size of my faith. That's what he's concerned with. That's what he wants to build up. And so Akan's sin, and the reason this whole scenario takes place and is, is revisited by us and sent to us to read and study and understand, Akan's sin was rooted in Israel's self-reliance. We got this. Well, verse six, Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel. Now, now Joshua's in the right place. Now, okay, I get it. Thing I love about Joshua, he's a quick learn. He got it. He's before the Lord. He's before the ark. That means he's right there at the tabernacle, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. You can assume in verse six that among the elders of Israel was Eliezer. Now again, he's not named here, but the fact that they're at the tabernacle before the ark and all the elders are there, I think it's a good bet that Eliezer's with them. Verse seven, Joshua said, alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us, if only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Sounds a little bit like Israel in the wilderness. Sounds like, like a faltering faith, perhaps. We'll stay with him. Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? Literally, they've turned their neck before their enemies. It's another way of saying, what can I say? We stuck out our necks. We got chopped. For the Canaanites, verse nine, and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And this is why I love Joshua. Because he realizes in this faith struggle prayer that he's having, he realizes the issue really isn't us. It's your name, Lord. This is about your reputation. Some have wondered if Joshua is just murmuring like Israel in the wilderness. No, look at where he is. Listen to what he says. Let me let Kyle and Delich explain it. They say the bold language of faith wrestling with God in prayer. Faith which could not comprehend the ways of the Lord. Ever been there? You trust the Lord, you believe in the Lord, but you cannot understand what's happening. You can't comprehend what it is that he's doing. But the right thing to do when you don't understand is to take your lack of understanding to the Lord. Bring it to him. Father, I don't get this. I I'm confused by this. Kyle and Delich continue and say, this involved the most urgent appeal to the Lord to carry out his work in the same glorious manner in which it had been begun, with the firm conviction that God could neither relinquish nor alter his purposes of grace. So, Joshua's having a, a faith struggle prayer. And we know it's a faith struggle prayer because of where he lands at the reputation of God. Lord, this is not about us, this is about you. But Joshua's praying to understand. And he's seeking the Lord in his lack of understanding. And that's what we are to do in our failures. We go off half-cocked like Israel going up to AI or I and we, we fail in that battle and we're routed and we're like, now what? You got two choices. You can wander off by yourself and say, well, I guess God's just not for me. 
Or you can go, Lord, why weren't you for us? Lord, what what did we miss? Lord, what about your great name? I thought we were supposed to come in and take the land and be victorious. Lord, help me understand. And that's where Joshua is and it is the right place to be. When our best intentions are routed and they collapse, take it back to the Lord. He can handle your, your concerns. He can handle your convulsions. Take it to the Lord. Again, verse nine, what will you do for your great name? And that's where Joshua's concern landed. And by the way, that is, that is a great prescription for our faith. When you're worried about your name, your reputation, or your perspective in life, remember, it's not about you. It is about him. It's about Jesus. It is about the glory of God and his great name. Verse 10 So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Note that, Israel has sinned. Not a con, Israel. And they, plural, also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they, plural, have even taken some of the things under the ban, harim, and have both stolen and deceived moreover they plural have also put among put them among their own things verse 12 therefore the sons of israel cannot stand before their enemies they turn their backs their necks before their enemies for they have become accursed i will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst rise up Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel has said, these are the things under, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. I love how the Lord says to Joshua, rise up. Have you seen Hamilton? If you haven't seen Hamilton, that's my favorite song. Rise up. You know, I just, I just feel so, I don't know, hip when I watch Hamilton. My kids look at me and go, Dad, no, just so not, so not hip. Rise up, rise up. If you've heard the phrase rise up in our culture, these days rise up is a cry, it's a rally cry against rebellion or a rally cry of rebellion against oppression. Rise up, we're gonna rise up. When God says rise up, he's calling them to holiness. This is where, again, the church is wholly different than the world. Our call to rise up is not to take up arms, not to stand with pride against the world. We're Christians and you're losers. That is not rising up. For us to rise up is to bow down. And to rise up is to be consecrated and to seek a position of holiness. For me to rise up is to clean out that which is impure and unholy in my life. Rise up, God says, and be consecrated. I love that. This is the beginning here of the ruin of secret sin. And the Lord is now beginning to bring them all into this understanding. Secret sin will cause me to not be victorious in battles. Secret sin, big or small, when it is buried within, as we will see here, will keep me from going forward in any kind of success or victory. And I'm not talking about success. I'm so careful with that word, success. Because even in the church, success means stuff. It means means 
things under the ban. No, no, godly success has nothing to do with gold and silver and holdings and stocks and bonds. Godly success has to do with rising up in holiness. And this is a call to holiness. And the truth is here, ultimately, as will happen with a con, all secret sins are revealed. I think we all know this, yet we keep sweeping it under the carpet. It's gonna be revealed. Maybe if I bury it a little deeper this time, it's gonna be revealed. It always is. One of the, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. It could go either way. But in being a pastor and in dealing with people week in and week out, one of the thing that things that convicts my heart is how often the same person will return with the same sin confession. Over and over and over, and I sit there going, when are they gonna get it? And then the Lord says, well, Rick, when are you? And I go, okay, I understand. So it becomes convicting. That's why I say it's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because it's heartbreaking. It's a blessing because I become convicted, and Cheryl can tell you this, of my own sin, of my own stuff. Why do I keep going around the same corner again and again? But this, we're, everything's gonna be revealed. We're never gonna get away with it. It's always unearthed, as it were. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Or Psalm 90, verse seven. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. There's nothing we can bury before the Lord. There's only one person we're fooling, and that's ourselves. Galatians chapter six, verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Well, Akan has sowed to his own corruption. And that's why the Lord, by the way, keeps saying, Israel has sinned, Israel has sinned. He says, they, they, they. Why? Read on, verse 14 in the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes, the Lord is still speaking, and it shall be, it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who, has, who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. What a process. Let's start with the tribe and we'll move inward from there. Verse 16, so Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. So tribe by tribe by tribe, all 12 tribes. Joshua's gonna move through the 12 tribes. Then he's come to the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Verse 17, and he brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerahites out of the tribe of Judah and he brought the family of the Zerahites near, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, after this long process that probably would have taken much of the day, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, 
and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And a con is found out because you can't hide secret sin. Tribe by tribe, family by family, house by house, man by man, and there stands a con. Why this long, tedious process? What's going on here? 2 Peter 3.9 is the answer. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. My friends, every step, every hour of this long day was opportunity for confession and real repentance on the part of Akan. The moment the tribe of Judah was called out, Akan could have at that moment saved a lot of time for everybody and stepped forward and said, it's me. I I repent I did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. It's me. But all Judah was brought out. And then when the family of, uh, of, the, of the, what was it, the Zerahites were called out, he could have at that point stood up and said, it's me. And then the family of Zabdi and all the way down to his own family, he had the whole day, he had the whole process to repent. This is what God does. He's given plenty of time for Akan to come forward. And by the way, that's why even today, if we are to go about the process of digging up a secret sin or a sin among us, it is not to shame, it is to set free. It's not to shame, it is to set free. It's to say, look, what you're doing here is not okay with the Lord. So repent and be free of this buried thing in your life. But be sure, buried sin is a landmine that's gonna blow up in your face. And Akan, up to this point, really thought he had it well covered. So did Ananias and Sapphira, right? If there's any New Testament parallel, it's Ananias and Sapphira lying about what they had actually done, Acts chapter five. Remember, they, they, they sold property and they came and they laid part of it before the apostles' feet and said, hey, here you go, we sold property and we're giving you the proceeds and they kept a little bit back. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they implied that they gave it all. And Peter ends up calling him in one at a time. Ananias, why'd you lie to the Holy Spirit? And he drops dead. Then they bring Sapphira in. Sapphira, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, uh, she drops dead. So it's as serious a thing with the two of them as it is with Akan And of course, in that situation, Acts chapter five, verse 11, great fear came over the whole church. Can you imagine if it happened here at the bridge? Bill, we're all aware of this. Aware of what? (laughs) I think that would make headlines in Oak Harbor. Yeah, front row guy dies in services, sin at 11. I don't know what it would be. Great fear, of course there was great fear. It takes sometimes the fear of the Lord to reveal and to remove sin so that he then can work on salvation. By the way, I'm not convinced Ananias and Sapphira are going to hell. They went to God. I'm not convinced a con after all takes place is condemned for eternity but he certainly is gonna be sent to God. We think so one-dimensionally in this world. There is another side to all of this. 
Well, great fear came over the church with Ananias' fire. I guarantee you there was great fear in Israel after all this happened. Look again at verse 19 where Joshua says to Achan, my son, I implore you and I hear, I hear the heart of Joshua. Please come clean. Like James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know what's really interesting? We look at that typically in terms of a righteous man praying for a sinner. Maybe it's the sinner who confesses and therefore is once again righteous before the Lord whose prayer now becomes effective again. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So Joshua now, by divine command, faithfully walks out this process and every step of the way, Akan kept his secret as long as he could. Verse 20. So Akan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. Hold on a second, wait a minute. Akan still doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. You can hear in this so-called confession that he doesn't even know what was wrong with what I did? How do we know that? Because he says, when I saw among the spoil. This is not spoil. This is harem. These are things under the ban. This is not spoil for you, Akan. This belongs to the Lord. They're devoted things. That's what the Lord calls them back in verse 11 when he says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have even taken some of the things under the ban. God didn't say they took some of the spoil because it wasn't spoil anymore. It was harem, under the ban. By the way, this is typical of how secret sin ruins a person. How we recast our sins is not as bad as maybe they might seem. It's not really that bad. Okay, so I bent the truth a little. No, you lied. Call it what it is. Well, yeah, but I, I was just speaking out of concern for the person. No, you were gossiping. Call it what it is. Well, I borrowed a few things from the office. No, you stole them. I had an affair. No, you committed adultery. See how different it is? Even in our culture, it's an affair. An affair? That sounds like you're meeting someone over a business lunch. No, no, it was adultery. Call it what it is. I'm not saying that to... Shame anyone, but let's deal with sin as sin. It's LGBTQ pride. No, it's sodomy. I didn't make up the word, nor the behavior, but it is what it is. When people embrace sin, <laughs> when they finally confess it so often, they don't call it what it really is. Our kids do this. Well, yeah, I took the cookie, but you made them for our dessert anyway. I mean, the, the, you know, immediately they're looking for a defense. Call it what it is. Just own it. So we recast sin, and we call it mistakes. They're not mistakes. They're rebellion. 
or, or we call them goofs or, or syndromes or conditions or genetics. Well, I'm just genetically predisposed to do this. Well, stop, because it's still sin. And if we would deal honestly what it is, again, with anything, and whatever, I don't know, whatever your sin issue is, I know what mine are. Whatever your sin issue is, if we will call it what it is and bring it into the light, God can deal with that. Our hearts then can be healed of that. But as long as I'm trying to sweep, as long as I'm still calling the spoils, spoils instead of the devoted things that they are to God, I'm making something out of it that it's not. Every sin has an excuse, but this whole thing is a con job. What a setup, right? A con, an a con job. Wow. And now I'm just aching over the whole thing. Listen, the progression of secret sin is obvious here. Look at verse 21, follow this through. He says, when I saw among the spoil, a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I, second, coveted. And third, took. And behold, they are concealed. There's the progression of secret sin. That is the progression that is ruinous in our lives. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I concealed. You can, you can find that pattern over and over. Look at the pattern of David with Bathsheba. He saw her. He took her to himself. Well, he saw her and he wanted her and he took her and he concealed the whole thing. Covered up, that's secret sin. It all starts with the eyes. As, you know, it's funny, as ugly a thing as sin is, it often looks very tantalizing at first. Like to Eve, it was fruit. And to David, it was a beautiful woman. To Judas, it was ministry proceeds. To Ananias and Sapphira, it was a way to bless the church, look good, and keep a little on the side. What's wrong with that? Sin always looks better than it really is. If we could see it for what it is, the ugly underbelly, it would change a lot. But first thing we do is we see, and then we covet, and then we take, and then, I don't want this to get found out, we conceal, and that's the worst of all because now, now it's, it's rotting. 1 John 2, 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father. It's from the world, and the world is passing away. These are things that are corrupted. These are things that rot. The world's passing away, and it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We were talking about this earlier. We have a tendency to view lust as a sexual thing. Lust is anything that's attractive to the eyes. Lust is anything that is tantalizing to me. So anything that I'm allured by or that I desire as I look at it, oh, that's good, and I wanna take hold of it. And most sin begins right there with the eyes. I see it, and mm, I want me some of that, whatever the issue may be. Which is why I love Psalm 101, verse three. I've said before, this psalm, this verse ought to be pasted above all of our television sets. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. But we see and we covet and we take and conceal. Now the end of the story is intense or under a tent, whichever way you want to take it. Verse 22. 
So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel and they poured them out before the Lord. Verse 24, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them, note this, interesting, up to the valley of Achor. Don't you normally go down to the valley? Well, geographically speaking, so they're next to Jericho. They're actually, um, uh, what's, the other, what's the other town that they were in before they go to Jericho? Somebody find it. It starts with a G. It's not important, but it's gonna bug me now. Gilgal, Gilgal. They're between Gilgal or at Gilgal after their victory over Jericho. If you, if you look on a Bible map, you can see Gilgal and, and Jericho. Well, um, they go up to the Valley of Accor. Well, it's a valley that's actually higher. It's still a valley in between mountains, but they have to go up to get into it, which is interesting. And, and I'll explain why in, in just a second here. But what's tragic about this whole thing is Akan's secret sin literally buried his entire family with him. His secret sin took his family down, his sons, his daughters, all that he had, even his tent, all of it is now brought up to the Valley of Accor. In verse 24, and in verse 25, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? <laughs> His name means trouble or troubler. Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. You think I use puns. I mean, this is serious. <laughs> and all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Whew. This is really like a radical turn from the first six chapters that were so glorious. They stoned them, they burned it all. Akan's sin, again, it buried his own family with him. By the way, let's redress something we were looking at at the very beginning. The reason why I believe that God spoke in the plural, that the sons of Israel, plural, had sinned, number one, there is no way Akan buried all this inside his tent without his family knowing there's no way. And, and, and even if you look at what he says, I coveted them, verse 21, took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent. Well, the word inside in Hebrew is tavek, in the midst of my tent. You wanna go find them? It's in the middle of my tent. Go into his tent and start digging. How in the world did Akan get back from the battle of Jericho <laughs> with, with the mantle of Shinar, which, by the way, Babylon was known for beautiful cloaks. The mantle of Shinar, this was beautiful weaving, and used in pagan practices. He's got a mantle of Shinar. How did he get that from Jericho to his tent without anybody seeing it? How, indeed, along with that, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. He's hauling this stuff. He has to get it into his tent, and then he's got to dig and bury, and nobody notices? Oh, come on. Get real with me here. His family had to know. So I think the reason his family goes down is not just because God's gonna take them out with a con, but because they are complicit. Hey, you gotta look at who God is, right, Brandy? I asked the question to the staff this morning, how could God do this, and why does he blame all the sons of Israel? And, and Brandy said, well, we gotta start with the fact that God is right. 
Yes, thank you. Let's start from the position of understanding God is righteous, so whatever he does is gonna be the right thing. We may not understand it, but he's gonna do what's right. And in just trying to work this out, his family's gotta be complicit. They've gotta know that under the tent of Achan, he was in there digging and burying, if not having helped him do it. On top of that, there may have been others in Israel who saw him taking these things and were like, see no evil, hear no evil. I didn't know, I know nothing. No, you just uh, don't tell, I didn't see it, but they did. And this is just my opinion, just Rick's opinion. You know, we'll know someday. But I wonder, why were there 36 men in Israel's crack squad sent up to fight AI or I? Why were 36 killed? I wonder if those 36 were complicit as well. If they knew about it, friends of Akan, and they kept it to themselves, don't stand. I'll give you some of it later. All Israel, God calls out a plurality in Israel that has sinned against him. His family, his friends, can't prove it, but I believe based on God's verbiage that it may well have involved far more than simply a con. Verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Which day? The day of the writing of the book of Joshua. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. The Valley of Achor. Valley is Amek Achor. Amek Achor, the valley of trouble. Because Achor means trouble. Just as Achan means troubler. So Achan is killed in the valley of Achor, the troubler killed in the valley of trouble. This valley appears five times in the Bible. We see it mentioned. Three times right here in Joshua. The next time we'll see it, uh, in Joshua 15, the valley of Achor is the border of the tribe of Judah, which is part of how we know where the valley of Achor is. Between Judah and Benjamin, it's the border there. So if you look at Gilgal and Jericho and then look at where Judah and, and Benjamin are, that border, that's the valley of Achor right there. So that's described in Joshua 15. That's our location. And, and again, you go up to the Valley of Accor because it's a higher valley than the plains of Jericho and Gilgal. Things are looking up. Because the next two mentions of Accor in the Bible are amazing. Turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 9. Isaiah's about in the middle of your Bible. It's easy just to kind of plop it open in the middle and you'll be real close to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65, verse nine. The Lord says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds. For who? for my people who seek me. Is it possible that the valley of trouble in your life might ultimately become a resting place? Lord, my troubles are overtaking me. I will make the valley of trouble a place of rest for those who seek me, for those who look for me. 
Turn over to uh, Hosea. Keep going to the right a little bit. Hosea chapter two. God always sees the big picture. He always sees beyond what we see. We see the trouble in the valley. He sees what he's going to do with the valley. He sees the rest that is going to come of it. And he's always looking ahead for his people Israel. So the very last mention of the Valley of Accor, Hosea chapter two, verse 14, the Lord says, therefore behold, I will allure her. He's talking about Israel in the last days. I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. A door of hope. She will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, husband, and will no longer call me Baali, owner. You're gonna call me husband. Where? In the valley of Achor. This is amazing. In the valley of trouble, there is a door of hope. In the valley of trouble, there is a door of hope. In the place where I am troubled by my sin, but I turn to the Lord and my sin is paid for, there is now a door of hope. Jesus said, I am the door, John 10, 9. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and will find pasture. What is in the pasture? Rest in the valley of Accor. Rest in the valley of trouble. A door of hope in the valley of trouble. But if we bury our sin, we're stuck with it. Jesus nailed our sin to the cross to resurrect people to new life. And so Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We might even call it a door of hope, even in our valley of trouble. The living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, our living hope, our resurrection, if you will, out of our valleys of trouble. In the valley of Accor, a door of hope. I just love that. And in the valley of Accor, a place of rest. Final thought. What do we do with all this? What do we do with the story of Akan in Joshua chapter seven? How, how do we take this? I encourage you to personalize it. What we do with our own secret sin, what we do with our own private lusts, our closet pleasures that God has overtly banned, and we know it. We all know it very well. What has God banned from my life? The things that, that I am allured to, that I desire, but they are not of him and they draw me away from him. What do I do? Listen, do two things. And we'll end with this. Number one, renounce hidden things. Renounce hidden things. 2 Corinthians 4.1, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We renounce hidden sin. We renounce secret sin. We don't hide and conceal. We confess and are free. Renounce hidden things. And when it comes to exposing a brother or a sister's sin, as we are called to deal with and we are called to do within the fellowship of believers what are we supposed to do with someone else's secret sin when it becomes when we become aware of it 
Restore with gentleness. When it comes to you, renounce the hidden things. When it comes to a brother or sister in Christ, you seek to restore with gentleness. It is always restoration, restoration, restoration. That's our first and only aim. It is not shame, guilt, and booting out. It is restoration. Galatians 6.2 says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so you will not too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What am I to do with my brother's secret sin, my sister's hidden things? Go to them with a heart, with a heart to restore. Yeah, but what if, I, what if I try to restore someone and they refuse to fess up and repent? They just wanna keep it buried. Well, at that point, it's not on you. It's not your deal. But don't walk away and hold on to it either. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive Motives of hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are people of restoration. I can't tell you the story. I wish I could right now. I have a dear friend who did something pretty bad several years ago, and I really struggled with it. And, and it, it harmed our friendship. It's nobody, by the way, it's nobody here, so you're all good. It harmed our friendship, and I didn't know how to navigate it and deal with it. And here for the first time after years, we're walking a path of restoration. And I am so thankful. And I am reminded in all this, it is not my job to go passing judgment. If I know of a secret sin in a friend's life, I don't address it because I'm the judge. I address it because like Joshua, please, please just confess this. Why? So the shame can be removed and you can be restored to a right relationship with Jesus. Father, I, I have nothing else to say about this but to thank you that that is your heart and to thank you for restoration and thank you, Lord, that you know so much further beyond anything we understand. But even tonight with this very serious situation brought before us and the reality of how damaging and ruinous that secret sins are, we recognize from your word that you are a God who desires first to restore. So help us, Lord, to be people who carry out the same thing, seeking restoration, seeking a path of repentance, and whether it's our own lives or others, Father, may we renounce these hidden things and seek to restore. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.